crew members and either welcome or welcome back to At Least There's a Dog, a Star Trek Enterprise review podcast in which we will boldly go episode by episode through the Star Trek series that, whatever its flaws, undeniably has the most dog. We are your hosts, Mandy and Josh, and on tonight's show, we will be discussing season three, episode 13, Proving Ground. Jeffrey Combs! Jeffrey Combs is back. Jeffrey Combs is back. Praise we, be to Jeffrey Combs. We missed him. We sure did. That was a pretty it, good episode. It was. It, it wasn't I, great. It was good, though. I feel like it was made of two episodes. Okay. It was made of the five-star episode out of five. Mm-hmm. That was the first half of the episode. Okay. And the three-star episode that was the second half of the episode. I kind of see where you're coming from with that. Like, we'll get into more of why that was as we sort of get into the nitty-gritty details of the episode, but I feel like there was a great episode in there that unfortunately did not last the entire episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Because plot dictated it or something. Because plot dictated that the episode had to, yeah, kind of go off the rails eventually. Okay. But Jeffrey Combs is back! Jeffrey Combs is back, and he is, uh... Oh, and it's so good to have him back again. For one thing, he has on-screen chemistry with literally every other human being. (laughs) And also, like, every piece of technology and potted plant. Well. So, putting him in the episode is pretty much guaranteed to inject some life into the series. Which they kind of have needed for a little while. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's been very up and down lately. It has, but it's been a really long time since there was an episode that was just this lively. It was, yes, it definitely kept moving. And that was good to see, because ultimately, my favorite Star Trek is the Star Trek that is fun. And this episode was fun, especially the first half of the episode. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Do you want to tell people... What happened in that first episode? What happened in, well, the entire episode. I'll tell you about the whole thing. So this was Proving Ground. And here follows my summary. The NX-01 is floundering through the Expanse, having shockingly remembered that they lost all their data last episode. They run smack into a giant sheet of flubber, and it's looking like (laughs) the going might get tough when all of a sudden they, and the show's entertainment value, are rescued by Jeffrey Combs! Commander Shran is here to help track down the Zindi and their nuke, which is in its testing phase on a nearby moon. Our crew are glad to have the help of their blue buddies, but at the same time, the Andorians feel just a little bit too friendly this time, given what we know about them and their past behavior. In the meantime, our old friend Degra from the Zindi roundtable council is not having his best day as his new superweapon prototype is suffering from a bad case of show continuity its malfunction (laughs) might give archer and crew a chance to learn a few things about what exactly earth is up against what is the andorians game plan can the crew thwart the zindi tests in time why does shran keep calling them pink skins when travis is sitting right there yeah, I, for so, I, I'm actually surprised. The star this of the is, show, oh, Porthos, should be called in to mark the Zindi superweapon as his territory. By being on it? That's what dogs do to mark their territory, yes. That would be interesting. Okay. Anyway, what were you saying? 
Oh, just like, uh, this is the first episode where the pink skin thing really bothered me. And I'm not sure why. I think it bothered me because, like, Travis is right there. He was, but... And T'Pol, who is not a human, is a lot more pink than he is. Yeah. But no one notices Travis anyway. It's true. Travis might as well not be there. But also, I don't know, this was the first episode where it's felt like a slur and not like just Shran messing around. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was it. Yeah, that, that did feel kind of weird this time. Yeah, but it's also not a slur that makes sense because, you know, there's established to be variation in skin tone for both humans and Vulcans. Mm-hmm. So, eh, whatever. Whatever. It's the writers not thinking. Yep. Oh, baby is squirming. Got the baby monitor. So is the dog. The dog is also Trudy squirming. Is, uh, circling around. Yep, you probably hear her in the background. Um... <laughs> So you want so, the trivia? Yes, you do have trivia for me, don't you? I do. Do you know what the trivia is going to be about? Is it going to be about an actor? Nope. Is it going to be about makeup? Nope. Effects? Nope. What's it going to be about? Going to be about American history. Oh. Okay. So. Oh, is this going to be a Manhattan Project thing? Uh, not quite Manhattan Project, but related. Okay. Go for it. Yeah, so this episode is called Proving Ground. And Archer points out that this is similar to what the United States, of course the United States, uh, did um, to Bikini Atoll. Mm-hmm. I'm never sure how to pronounce that, to be honest. Atoll? Atoll? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to Bikini Atoll um, in the 1940s and 50s uh, to test out nuclear weapons. It was, the actually, actually, the U.S. had a considerable Pacific Island proving ground. Where they tried out lots of nukes. Okay. Um, And I was wondering, how much do you know about that? Extremely little. Well, I think I'm going to change that. Okay. So, um, it started in 1946. So this is post-Manhattan Project. Okay. They are no longer a secret project to win World War II. Now they are a project to build bigger and bigger and bigger weapons. Fun. Probably to stop the Soviets. Or something. Cold War. Um, so Bikini Atoll, um, is one of the Marshall Islands. So first of all, do you know what an atoll is? It's like a little section of islands, isn't it? It's a ring of islands. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a coral ring of islands with, um, a lagoon in the middle. So it is not one of the Marshall Marshall Islands. It's actually a few of the Marshall Islands. Yeah. Um, and the Marshall Islands are administered by the, well... They're in some sort of a weird relationship where the United States is kind of in charge of them. Okay. Kind of. Um, and it's it's all part of Micronesia. The uh, whole bunch of islands out there in the Pacific that for hundreds of years, um, people have been canoeing or not canoeing, you know, sailing between. Mm-hmm. So in 1946, uh, the U.S. Army convinced the 100 and... 46 residents, I believe it was that many, of Bikini Atoll to leave and to resettle. Okay. Um, And they went voluntarily. They were under the impression they'd be able to go back. I Um, bet that was a false impression, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yep, figures. This story does not have a great happy ending. Aww. (laughs) Um, Or an ending. So... (laughs) Oh. Awkward. Um, Then in 1946... Um, Operation Crossroads, 
the United States started testing nuclear weapons out there. And um, Bikini Atoll was the first uh, place they dropped some nukes on. Um, 1954, there was Operation Castle. And um, they were dropping weapons on Bikini Atoll and Enewatek Atoll. Um, and that had Castle Bravo was the largest nuclear weapon uh, detonated um, in above ground testing by the United States ever. Okay. Uh, 15 megaton warhead. That was bigger than they were expecting. That sounds, yeah, really big. Yeah. That was kind of the arrival of the hydrogen bomb. Um, and they kept on doing testing in that area all the way up through 1962. Um, when in 1963, there was a partial test ban treaty between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And that ended atmospheric and underwater testing of nuclear weapons. So after that, the only nuclear weapons tests the U.S. did were underground in Nevada. And they kept doing that through 1992. So I'm guessing that you probably, for a long period of time, would not want to go to Bikini Atoll. That is correct. I mean, it's not, it's not horrifically radioactive there. Anymore. Anymore, yes. Um, but uh, there's still stuff there that is too contam- contaminated to make it ideal for things like agriculture or fishing. Yeah. So you could go there. You'd be perfectly fine. But there might be some problems. And it might be tough to, you know, live there. So unfortunately, I told you the story didn't really have a good ending. Um, Yeah, those uh, people that uh, resettled, um, at this point, uh, they've resettled several times. They've gone off in different places. Um, unfortunately, it sounds, while they have gotten some, you know, money and support from the United States, it sounds like uh, there's really no ending to the story because they can't go home. Um, and and at this, a number of them are probably dead at this point. At this point, well, at this point, there's um, more than a thousand people who count themselves as um, the Bikini uh, Island, I guess, descendants or something. And... Uh, yeah, they they do get uh, some small compensation, but they can't go home. And uh, a lot of the places in the Marshall Islands are not good to live at. Um, the Marshall Islands, in general, are not very high above sea level. Mm. And sea level is going up. And some of the islands are a bit radioactive. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, so... It... We should probably let them come to, like... Wyoming or something. Some of them do live in the U.S. now. Okay. Um, and some of them live on other ones of the Marshall Islands or other places. It's, you, you know, know, it's not a terrible, terrible ending, but it's it's not really a satisfying conclusion we, or anything. We got lots of room for people that we, you know, kicked out of their homes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Well, um, maybe by the time Enterprise rolls around. Who knows? Um, now... I don't know if you knew about this, but the um, the swimwear bikini is named after the island. I did know that. Okay, yes. The uh, the creator of the swimwear wanted a very exciting name. So shortly after the U.S. started dropping nuclear weapons there, decided it would make an exciting name for the swimwear. That part I didn't know about. I assumed it was just a similar thing to, like, Bermuda shorts. No, no. Um, the swimwear is not 
you know, native to that island or anything. Uh, I don't think Bermuda shorts are native to Bermuda either. Yeah, well, it it was just a name that seemed explosive. Oh. And that's How it. How whimsical. <laughs> and Alrighty then. So now you know a little bit more about... Uh, about some of the stuff that the United States has done in the past. Indeed, I do. What fun. <laughs> Speaking of fun, I believe it is time for Faith of the Start. Oh, yes. So, in case you have missed the last couple episodes, or this is the first time you're joining us, Faith of the Start is where we answer one very simple question, which is on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did the theme song ruin the cold open? It really didn't. I gave it a three this time. Okay. I was anticipating a much higher score because I thought that it was going to come right after the previously on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I was that like, would have oh been... man, they're building, this, they're building it up with this really cool music and all this stuff that's happened earlier in the show. And then they're just going to botch it with this stupid faux country western theme song. But then they went into the scene with the with Jeffrey Combs and company. Mm-hmm. And that scene was a little more low-key. Yeah. And the transition was honestly not too bad. I was just going to give it a 2 again, but if you want to give it a 3, that's we'll fine. We'll call it a 2.5. Oh, it we can figures, use decimals. It figures they would stop doing ridiculous transitions between the gold open and the theme song right as we started doing this segment. Yeah, kind of like how um, Travis Mayweather started getting lines as soon as we started counting them. Yeah, and then he stopped getting them as soon as we stopped counting them. It's funny how this works. It is funny. It's like they're trolling us from beyond. (laughs) Anyway, that was Faith of the Start. So shall we get into our pluses and minuses? Sure. Okay. Jeffrey Combs! Jeffrey Combs is great, as always. Yep, he really is. The Andorians in general, I'm actually going to expand into that particular plus, are one of the most fun aspects of Enterprise. And I really, really wish they would show up more because every time the Andorians come, the show feels like it has an actual personality. Mm -hmm. They're they're interesting. So more Andorians, please. Fewer Vulcans, fewer humans, fewer Zindi. More Andorians. (laughs) Thank you. Is Is it the antenna? The antenna help. They're a really cool element of the costume. And they were... They were going. And they were working hard. Yeah, the the puppeteers were clearly doing a lot with that. Also, the uh, the photographers were brave because they were doing some real close ups on some Andorian faces to the point where I was like, "Hey, I can see the cracks in Jeffrey Combs's makeup." I, you know, I kind of noticed that. Um, but that's what they're doing. Yeah, I also supported close-ups on Jeffrey Combs because he's acting with his face through the makeup. So yeah, more of that. He's acting with his face and his antenna. Yeah, or somebody else is acting with his antenna anyway. I I believe he coordinates with them. So it's all all part of a unified group acting or something. It's like, you know, it's what a puppeteer does. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, yes, Andorians, more of them. I'm going to give a plus just to continuity. Yeah. That was one of mine. Um, that previously on reminder was kind of necessary mm-hmm. um, because, gosh, they referenced a lot of stuff that happened. And also, we are going to eat crow because they actually did remember that they lost all their data. They did. They didn't even have a complete backup. And it seems like 
maybe that was a part of the the design like they realized that uh they needed to lose that data in order to have the uh, distortions be a plot point yeah and they uh, they ran into the the flubber sheet distortion at the beginning because they were working from incomplete data mhm i'm i'm very amused that you're calling it that it it seems to be it on their may, mind. It may be because we watched the absent-minded professor last night, but I, I assume thought, it is. I thought it looked like Flubber from the remake. It was kind of odd, like that. The it way looked that like looked. they ran into green goo that went through a, which is different than what the distortion usually looks like. Yeah, but I guess it was a new kind of distortion. Also, did you notice that guy who fell from the second floor in engineering during that? I did. Whatever happened to him? No one ever spoke of him again. Nope. I guess that's where Phlox was this episode, planning his funeral. Or fixing him. We can hope for that. some unethical technique. Probably. We'll assume that. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, But anyway, continuity. It was great. They, uh... This this was not, but on the other hand, you know, this was not a standalone episode. It tied in with everything. Mm-hmm. It moved things forward. Yeah. Um, but it also had a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, so well done in that regard, Enterprise. You're acting like a real space opera here. Mm-hmm. There's hope for you yet. Um, I really liked that Andorian lieutenant. She was pretty good. I want her to come back. I hope she does. She was played by Molly Brink, whom I know from absolutely nothing else, but who... She uh, has not been in very much. Okay, well, color me impressed for uh, this particular uh, outing of hers, because she made the Malcolm Reed scenes fun to watch. (laughs) And Malcolm Reed has not been a character that I have looked forward to seeing on screen for quite a while. Yeah. But they had some real good banter back and forth. Mm-hmm. I thought they were going to make out by the end of the episode, but you eh. you thought they were going to make out as soon as they showed up on screen together. Well, because they were clearly flirting from the second they showed up on screen together. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll get together in a future. Maybe there episode. will be a future for them. But yeah, I liked her a lot. Okay. Um, the Andorian Mining Consortium. Yeah, yeah. That was Which runs from no one. <laughs> <laughs> Shran was having fun. Shran was having fun, and Jeffrey Combs was having fun. Yes, and it's great when people can have fun. And it's it's weird because he's because the character of Shran, like, he's not a simple character. I also liked how weirded out the Zindi clearly were by him. Mm-hmm. And they did not know what to do about that. Nope, they surely did not. But yeah, that was a fun scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the dialogue in general, actually, I thought this was a very snappily written episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. It was lively. It was, you know, it sounded like things real people might actually say. It was thoughtful in a lot of places. It was headed towards some very clear themes. Just mm-hmm. uh, Chris Black wrote this episode and nice job, Chris Black. Good on you. And I think they were setting up a lot of things, too. They were, yes. Um, I've just got one quote here. I was also a big fan of a remarkably selfless act for a Vulcan. Mm-hmm. I was a fan of my mother's security clearance is higher than mine. Oh, yeah. I like that, too. 
Like that, that's such a matter of factly way of of looking at it. It's like And then they awesome. got into like talking about their families and their family histories and like stuff that normal people talk about and it was mm-hmm. like it's it's so nice to see these characters behaving like people again. I wonder Wasn't it nice when they used to do that regularly? I wonder if um that lieutenant is going to um join Shran in, in the uh the human club. The human fan club. Maybe. We shall see. Yeah. Because right now it seems like it's only him. It does seem that way, doesn't it? And apparently that's uh, questionable. So, But uh, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, we're on you. Oh, oh dear. Um, yeah. uh, speaking of continuity, T'Pol had an awkward interaction with Trip. And it makes sense. Yeah, because they like each other. And uh, T'Pol had a little bit of a thing happen with Sim. Who is not Trip, but looks like Trip. But sure looked like Trip, and sounded like Trip, and quacked like Trip. So, there are some, uh, it, it, it was nice, just again, nice that they're, they're touching on what already happened. Indeed it is. Um, speaking of Tucker, that scene between Tucker and Shran. Now again, Connor Trenier and Jeffrey Combs both have chemistry with every single other living and non-living thing. Mm -hmm. So it would definitely make sense that they would have a lot of chemistry with each other. But I also liked that scene because it spoke to some of the broader themes of the episode in a really good, subtle way. Where, like, Shran was trying to understand why Tucker wouldn't be motivated by revenge. And one of the things that you find out about the Andorians throughout the episode is just how much they are motivated by revenge and by the desire to be on top. Mm -hmm. And so that scene becomes important in a way that actually makes me dislike less some of the parts of the episode that I disliked on their faces. Gotcha. I I also think it's it's interesting because uh, at first Trip was motivated by revenge. Yeah, but he seems to have kind of left that behind as he cooled down, and I'm really okay with that. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, it's been a those, nice evolution for the character. Those neuropressure sessions have really helped. I bet they have. And boobs will do that for oh, you. Oh, come on. You have seen what getting they get a good to night's with those sleep will, pressure sessions. Getting a good night's sleep will help you. That and boobs. <sighs> Your turn. I thought it was just my turn. Well, it's your turn now. Oh, okay. Um, I've got one left. Okay. Nicely done, David Livingston. I really liked that shot of the antennae above Archer's head. That was my last one, too. <laughs> Very good. Oh, I I made us rewind and watch that scene again because I liked it so much. Oh, it was, it, it was just a wink to, to the fans, but it was so fun. It was. It really was. Yeah, just in general... I Scott Bakula should have blue antennae. By the end of the episode, I kind of wasn't even writing down my pluses just because I was enjoying it was it was a fast moving plot towards the end and I was just enjoying it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should we move on to the minuses? We should. I guess I'll do I want to start with my big one or my small I'll start with a small one. Archer right. Uh, that doesn't even sound like a real thing. No, no, it doesn't. That's all. Okay. Ah, uh, here's here's one. What was Shran's plan 
if if Shrin was secretly planning to steal the weapon all along, what was his, you know, what was he doing? Yes, yeah, so this is, like, I have one very serious righteous beef with this episode, which you're basically getting to, so I'll go ahead and make this mine as well, which is I did not like Shran's heel turn. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that it was clunkily handled, that it didn't go with the characterization that he'd had for the rest of the episode or with the characterization that he's had throughout the show. Like, Shran, like, yeah, maybe Andorians generally have a reputation of being backstabbers because that's a thing that Star Trek does where they give races personality traits Mm -hmm. because they tend to think, unfortunately, in collectives. But Shran has never been a backstabber Mm -hmm. throughout this so far. And I did not like that he suddenly became one because some Andorian from far away told him to. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, it was, it, it looked like he was, he was conflicted on it. It did. But in the end, his lawyer, he's, unlike DePaul, he's not ready to resign his commission. He's not, but I wish he would have, I wish he had at least let the NX-01 help with the repairs. That would have made me feel better about the whole thing. No, but instead of letting the NX-01 help with the repairs, he sent them the data on the weapon. He did, but I don't know. Just that whole thing left me with kind of a bad taste in my mouth about the way that the... About just the way that he and his ship went there. I... I... Like... Because it was clear... Because there was a point where it was clearly his intent to stab Archer in the back. Mm Mm-hmm. He did, but at the same time, he also saved everyone on the NX-01 when he tractored them he out did, of that and I anomaly. Guess, I guess you could justify this with, it's complicated and he's complicated, but I don't like complications that go against all of the things that we know about the character. I think this is going to eat at him. I hope it does. I hope that's where this goes. Because that's what happened before. Like, he first became kind of obsessed with Archer because he felt that he owed Archer. Yeah. And I think think as far as their balance goes uh mm, i think it's hard to say who exactly owes who because he did betray archer but then archer did destroy their weapon they're gonna they have to, they're gonna have to become buddies again because they're more fun as buddies than they are as i don't know enemies rivals whatever they are yeah but it, it's gonna be challenging to get there like, this is not a Kirk and the Romulans relationship where in another life I could have called you friend. Like, they, like, those They're going to call each other friends. They're going to call each other friends, yes. We'll get there. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure who we're on. Yeah, it's fine. We're on you. Okay. Um, related to that a little bit, I, I think that the show is running into a bit of a problem with its points of view. And I, I start to get a little bit uncomfortable with this. Mm-hmm. This is, and this has been going on all season, where mm-hmm. you get to see things from inside of the secret Zindi chamber, where they've got all the different uh, flavors of Zindi, mm-hmm. and they're all plotting against the humans. Um, and like, okay, that's fine. And then we get to see little bits where we see, you know, Shran and the Andorian uh, upper management person uh, talking with him about mm-hmm. their secret plans. But when you when we get to see these sorts of things, but only sometimes, 
it, it's weird because as as the audience like okay dramatic irony where the audience knows things the characters don't that can be okay but i feel it's very inconsistent sometimes we get to see things sometimes we don't get to see things sometimes we're seeing things that are somewhat misleading i don't know i it it feels a little bit awkward how we we get to see what's going on except when they don't want us to see what's going on and it's not even like I mean, isn't that Probably always disguised. isn't that always how point of view switches work? Though we see what's going on, except when they don't want us to see what's going on. Yeah, but it—I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm making too much of this. Like this doesn't bother me. Okay, um, just like usually, Star Trek isn't a show that has points of view outside of the heroes. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm gl- just glad that they're trying. Um, it mixes things up every so often. It does, but I, I feel like if you're going to show us what's going on there, then, I don't know, you're, uh, it feels disingenuous they, to me. I think they give us just about all I can tolerate of the Zindi point of view. Okay. Because they're not that exciting. They aren't. Although I, I do root for the, the Zindi, what are they called? The Zindi um, Aquatic? Oh, yeah, they're fun. The ones in the fish tank? The ones in the fish tank. I also laughed when uh, they started referring to the humanoid Zindi. <laughs> that's on my minuses list. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I <laughs> it assume that's a translation error, but come on! You, come, like, you have to be able to think of a better term for them than the they're humanoid Zindi. They're the Zindi primates. Zindi. Yeah, they're the primate Zindi, exactly. That, that's that's what they're referred to other times. Um, aren't the prim- Wait, aren't the primates the hairy ones? I think those are the arboreal ones. Oh, okay. Which is silly yeah. because they're both primates. Um, but primate Zindi would still make more sense than humanoid Zindi. Yeah, that was... Um, on things that did bother me, Archer was acting awfully chill about potentially murdering the entire Andorian crew. Yeah, yeah, he was. Like, you know, I, I assume that Archer was thinking, like, you know, they're... They're going to get rid of it. He's going to realize I'm not bluffing and everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. But they cut it awfully close. And for a guy that you were like breaking bread and sharing drinks with about 45 minutes ago in Showtime, like the expression on, and I realize we've made fun of Bacula's range of facial expressions before, but he was wearing his kind of nonchalant facial expression. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't, I, I'm not into this archer who is so hardened that he's just going to blow up his uh, his frenemy right now. I don't care for that. It was an it was an interesting gamut, though. Um, sure, but I would have like if 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 we can't have it, no, none of us can have it. But I would have at least liked a line, maybe of like, "I'm not bluffing. Get that thing out of your hall," or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just like he was he. He was too okay with the possibility that he was going to kill all of them. Fair enough. But on the other hand... And it would have... Like, it, it was an act of killing. Like, he had to give the order to T'Pol yeah. to arm uh, the weapon. On the other hand, I think that Shran respected it. I mean, I think he did, but that doesn't mean I have to like no, it. That's fair. That's fair. Um, going back a moment, um, the particular out-of-point-of-view thing that bothered me this time... Mm-hmm. Was that they started the episode on uh, Shran's ship um, with that point of view, 
and after the you know last time on, mm-hmm. and made it look like they were going to try to help. Their their mission was to help the NX01. They did make it look that way. And so there's a there there's a case where they're using the non you know our hero's point of view to intentionally mislead the audience. Yeah, and that may have been one of the things that bothered me about the heel turn was that they didn't lay the seeds for it very well. Yeah, it felt a little bit um, artificial. And I think they actually could have fixed that by just having Shran's conversation with the general start off with something like, hey, your orders have changed. Could be. We're changing the mission. Here's your new or, mission. Or just don't... Just let let the paranoia stay throughout. Don't try to put the audience at ease at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that was klutzy, now that you mention it. Okay. Um, I've just got a couple more little ones. Um, there was some weird, speaking of point of view, there was some weird editing and blocking choices going on. Like, okay. why on Shran's camera did the general appear to be staring off screen at a point several miles to Shran's right? <laughs> I didn't even notice. Like, why would you not be looking at the camera? <laughs> oh, it's uh teleprompter. I, I guess <laughs> he's reading his lines off the wall or something like that. And then there were also just there there was some very distracting editing in here. Like the one scene that I remember was when we like cut away from a shot of Shran's midsection. Hmm. Where it seemed like they had been doing a fade in or a zoom in or something and had then just stopped midway through. So the directing I thought in general was pretty good. The editing I was not a fan. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm actually about out of things on here. Like, I, I also felt that the the turn was somewhat awkwardly done. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I'm just excited that, uh, you know, something happened. Something happened of consequence that will move us from wandering aimlessly uh, through Western, I mean, uh, through the Delta Expanse. <laughs> Um, to, not the Delta Expanse. The Delphic Expanse. The Delphic Expanse. Whoa. Um, this isn't Voyager. This is not Voyager. Uh, to, you know, getting back to the fun stuff. Yeah, and with I... With the Andorians. Not, not that we haven't had a good time in the, the Delphic Expanse sometimes, but... Yeah, but I was realizing just how much I missed the really fun elements of this show because there have been good episodes this season. But like I said, it's been quite a while since we had an episode that I would describe as being fun. Mm-hmm. And, and Star Trek really is at its best when it has fun. This is a thing that New Trek suffers from a lot is its refusal to just have fun. And you have also this problem where if you're on a life and death of the entire species mission, and you are, you know, this is so critical. If you do stop to have fun, it feels wrong. But the cool thing is, Shran is a character who has a personality that is fun. He does. And fortunately, he was here on business this time. Yep. So it worked out and it didn't feel weird to happen. Yeah, so good on ya, y'all. Good choices were made here. Yeah. All right, in that case, we have some awards. Well, the uh, Mayweather Report... Who was this episode's forgotten character? I mean, it was... It was Flox. It was Flox, because he wasn't in it. And honestly, I'm kind of okay with that, because I don't know what he would have done. 
And it mm-hmm. gave some other people who have been out of the limelight for a while a chance to shine. Yep. So yes, flocks got pushed to the margins in this episode, but yeah, it happens to us all sometimes. Are, are, are you telling me that one of these podcast episodes, I'm going to just not appear? Because it happens to all of us sometimes, including me. Oh dear. My Speaking co-host. Of paranoia. <laughs> oh dear. And that also means that we have a Kirk Award to bestow on someone. Every show, we bestow the James Tiberius Kirk Award on the character who spends the episode keeping the Star Trek legacy alive by doing the best William Shatner impersonation. And I, this time, am going to nominate Malcolm Reed. Ooh, describe this. Because Malcolm Reed was the one who spent the episode flirting with, but also surreptitiously spying on the alien girl, which is a total Kirk move. I'll give you that. Were you going to? I hadn't even thought of that, but I like it. It's about time somebody other than Archer picked it up. Yeah. All right. Enjoy it while it lasts, Malcolm Reed. This doesn't happen very often. No, it... Oh, does this put him ahead of his uh, dream self now? It might, finally. Actually, I think he was already ahead, but I'm not sure. I'll check the standings some other time. Dream Malcolm Reed. You gotta get back here. (laughs) Can't let this happen. (sighs) Okay, yeah, I think that's about uh, all we've got for this one. Alrighty, then. As always, thank you for listening. If you are enjoying this, please tell all your family and friends to join the crew. If you're really enjoying this, please consider leaving us a rating or review or signing up for a subscription on the podcast platform of your choice. If you would like to tell us how we have brightened your day or send us some ideas for the show, shoot us an email at at least there's a dog at gmail.com. And if you are watching along with us, your next viewing assignment is the episode Stratagem. Take care of yourselves, and until next time, remember to go wherever your heart will take you. Bye. Bye.